1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets
1: Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's check in with Adam Gold, founder and chief investment officer at Adam LLC. Adam, again, kind of a boring day today, but... When you talk to your clients, what's your number one message these days?
3: Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, we think boring days are fun. They may not be fun for, for the news uh, cycles, but generally speaking, uh, things don't change that much day-to-day in, in the long term in the big scheme of things. Any given day, something might uh, change that. But generally, since we last spoke a few months ago, uh, things have gotten you know, extremely worse across so many Investor sentiment, inflation numbers, interest rates rising, and all of that is already priced in. We think a lot of that is what's caused the, the markets to sell off here the last few months. So people who talk, and you know, we speak with clients every day, and they're very concerned about where they are. And we say that that's the opportunity to be deploying capital. To be concerned now, to sell now, feels like you're a few months behind the curve. Um, and some may argue that's where the Fed is, but the Fed is you know, trying to react to, to what they see every day. And so we think the opportunity is uh, for people who have a long-term horizon, which is multi-years, which is the only kind of investor, investors and investments we try to focus on, that we think this is a time when other people are selling, you should be buying. And it's not easy, it's not fun day-to-day, and things may continue to you know, to get worse on a daily sort of return basis. But that's where the opportunity is, because long-term, there's still extremely large glowing, global trends around technology around population growth there's just a lot of underlying tailwinds here in the long term
2: so i mean we're we i I know that we're not trading for 4800 but we are at 4400 on the s&p it's it's not so uh far off from the high are you are you saying it's just um you know gonna look like will look like in the rearview mirror five ten years from now such an opportunity that you should buy now regardless of what we do in the next few weeks or months
3: That's our viewpoint. When I was born in 1983, the Dow was 1,100. When I started my career in 2001, the Dow was 10,000. We're at 34,000 now, and if you look forward a couple years, by year couple, I mean you know a couple decades rather, uh, you know we're going to have a Dow at 100,000, and that Kager, that annual growth rate is sort of in the low mid single digits. It's not in the teens anymore because you know when you have a large numbers, there's it's hard to continue to grow at that pace. But if inflation is in the mid-single digits and fixed interest rates are in the low single digits before tax, we still believe equities are the only place to be invested over the long term to have any chance of beating inflation.
1: All right. So what are some of the sectors that you think we should be looking at here as we go into – or as we, you know, we certainly are in the, the beginning of a, a rising interest rate environment? Yep.
3: So I think historically financials, you know, there's sectors now now where we focus, this is what I think generally the the opportunity that people may think is, well, with rising rates, banks can get paid more. But then, of course, we have inflation concerns. And so there's obviously recession risk. And so banks do not do very well during recessions because there's a lot of loans and there's bad debt revisions and things that cost their earnings to go away, that take away some of that, you know, interest rate um, increase opportunities. So, We've only focused on technology for over 20 years. The reason is is that innovation and new product cycles, these are not priced into stocks today. The only thing that analysts can do is project forward for what they, they see in front of them. I'll give the example of Apple. When I started investing in the company with the iPod, people thought the iPod was going to go the way of the Mac, Windows and Microsoft were going to take them out. And then a few years later, that hadn't happened, so the company grew very nicely, but then they introduced the iPhone. And that none, that there was no revenue or profit based into those estimates. And we think about, are there innovative companies today that are doing exciting things? And that's where the technology world is so great, because there are companies working on internal innovation and new products where analysts cannot price them in. And so we're starting to see downgrades. You know, what's funny is, you know, back in November, all we saw were upgrades of companies. example, like NVIDIA, 320, 340 a share, we were seeing upgrades. Analysts were chasing each other with targets that were higher. And now at 220, the stock's down 35 percent. Same company, same business, same innovation. We're seeing downgrades. There were no downgrades at 340, and so it just seems like the, the Wall Street and some of the analysts that are focused on generating commissions around trading—they do the exact opposite of what you should do for a long-term investing.
2: You guys get commissions, Paul? Do you?
1: We should definitely get. I mean, you get ranked like by your sales force and stuff on you know making some big calls and things like that. So, uh, kinda, yeah. <laughs>
3: But I think it's the exact opposite of how to compound wealth. You want to buy low and sell high. To be downgrading stocks that are down 35%, 40%, that have cash flows, that have you know, exciting opportunities in the future, that doesn't seem like the, long, the great long-term decision.
1: I hear you. All right, good stuff. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess I kind of did that back in the day on the sell side. Adam Gold, founder and <laughs> you, chief investment you, officer you, at Katam L.C. Hey,
2: that's that was a sin. My- that's a sin. He's telling us that's <laughs> the wrong thing. That's not Serving your customers. I was a big investment banker
1: as an analyst. We did tons of deals in my space. Uh, I'll mention,
3: if I'm still on, I'll mention one more example of a great (laughs) investor. The Oracle uh, from Omaha has deployed over $30 billion in the last month.
1: Yep, I know. He's, He's been putting money to work. We appreciate that. Adam Gold, thank you so much. Founder and Chief Investment Officer, Katam, LLC. Matt, do you have any idea what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter?
2: I, uh, well, you know what? We watched, we all watched that TED Talk thing last week, and I thought it was really fascinating. Um, He says this is something that he wants to do for democracy, for society. It's a free speech issue Mm -hmm. and not an economic move. Okay, a lot of people aren't going to take that at face value, and especially, you know, on the left there's a lot of concern that he wants to i don't know why there is this concern but everyone's saying that he's kind of coming to the rescue of pro-trump people or i I have no idea about that he seemed genuine and uh i think it's fascinating to watch it's fascinating to watch and fortunately for us matt winkler the
1: founder of bloomberg news editor-in-chief emeritus of bloomberg news he's paying attention to this uh so he can share his thoughts Matt, you know, we, we look at Elon Musk and I, as a traditional investor am uncomfortable with this guy, particularly if I were a shareholder of one of his companies, even though the stock has done so great and he's made so many investors, so much money. How do you think about Elon Musk these days?
4: Uh, You have to think about him in the context of maximizing shareholder value. And if you go back to the initial public offering of Tesla in 2010, uh, to understand what has happened to Tesla, you have to put an exponent next to Tesla. So it's Tesla to the 12th power. Yep, okay. So this is a company that's gone from a billion dollars to uh, a trillion today. And um, it wasn't luck. It was, if you think about it, 2010, virtually nobody took electric vehicles seriously. Today, everybody does. You, and, and Tesla and, and, and is full the full disclosure,
1: Matt, you are a tesla driver owner right i am and a happy a, one
4: yeah and i can uh attribute that that to a uh, combination of uh, meeting musk uh, for an interview at bloomberg and spacex headquarters back in 2014 and after we got done uh, he invited uh, us to uh, try a tesla or two and uh you know that's where it started but you know, really all kidding aside, what is uh, relevant about Tesla is that it has been very methodical yep. and very disciplined about growth, and that's the that's the one thing that gets investors excited, and Tesla's had growth that has been unequaled by any of the top largest companies today, and Tesla got to its $1 trillion market capitalization in 11 years, sooner if you like than any of the companies we're familiar with, whether it's Microsoft or Amazon, Facebook got there briefly, but it didn't last very long. This, the Tesla valuation is sticky, and uh, you may have noticed that last Thursday, uh, one of Tesla's champions, Ark Kathy Wood, yeah. uh, increased her target more than 50 percent to $4,600 a share. So. That's an indication of just where Tesla. And she's
2: been right on Tesla. I mean, you point out in your column that she um, forecast, I think, a trillion dollar valuation before anyone else did and stuck to her guns.
4: yeah. and uh, and there's a reason for that is that why is Tesla done as well as it done? Because it actually anticipates the things that it needs before everybody else does. And what I mean by that is Musk was very concerned about vertical integration long before COVID-19 became a problem for every company Mm -hmm. worldwide. Uh, He did things to achieve supply security, if you like, Uh, nickel, for example, very important essential component in electric vehicles. And he made several agreements to get nickel um, so that the supply would not be disruptive. Uh, for uh, Tesla in the the latest quarter, for example, showed the deliveries were uh, much better than what people anticipated, even though he said it was a very difficult quarter. So this is a company that actually has been very strategic in the way it goes about uh, manufacturing vehicles. Their factories are built from the ground up, whether it's Berlin, Austin, Texas, Fremont California yeah um, and
2: he's done incredible I mean Shanghai. look he I still use PayPal I, I noticed yep. this weekend I was like wow I'm still using PayPal and we saw him last week I think send four civilian citizens to the ISS which is like mind-blowingly just unbelievable how well he's done with SpaceX why do you think he Um, makes all this noise on Twitter and challenges the SEC? I mean, is it just because he can?
4: You know, I don't actually spend a lot of time thinking about what you and others would consider his eccentricities. When he was
2: smoking a joint on Joe Rogan's podcast? (laughs) other,
4: Other than to say this, that he isn't the first brilliant chief executive officer, founder of a company, if you like, to have uh, attributes that people have considered socially uh, questionable. And that just has been something that we've seen in history. And so what is far more important, the context that I think everybody misses is this company Tesla has transformed the world's view of vehicles to the extent that Tesla itself is is a robotic company if you like yeah you know it's not a car company how do you view by the way I
2: also I don't want to sound too naive but you have to give it to him that he's done so much to fight climate change he at least says he wants to buy Twitter right now to support free speech and democracy I mean this is a guy who has big ideas about helping the world right so people can be cynical about that because he's made so much money doing it, Um, but you can't deny the fact that he's changed the way we uh, think about the future of transportation.
4: Yeah, and if you consider all the obstacles arrayed against him, remember, uh, a lot of uh, states wouldn't let Tesla sell its vehicles uh, the way it wanted to because the car dealer lobby, if you like, was so powerful. Um, And he somehow got through that. The fact that now everybody's in this market and Tesla has been able to hold its market share consistently, even though the market has expanded uh, dramatically, tells you something about the quality of the vehicles that he has. And and Kathy Wood, for example, says that in battery technology alone, Tesla is at least three years ahead of its competitors.
1: Matt, Your column today has got the headline, In Defense of Elon Musk Managerial Excellence, uh, Tesla CEO's track record proves he's a preeminent builder of businesses and a maximizer of shareholder value. He retweeted that out today. Did you see that?
4: Uh, Somebody told me that. I I didn't see it, but uh, I was was informed.
1: He's got a couple followers, so I'm thinking, I think this might get Mr. Winkler some notoriety. Because nobody, you know, he's (laughs) just founded Bloomberg News. You know, I mean,
2: but... Getting he retweeted. does it by Elon's pretty it, good. Elon Musk does have 82.4 million followers on
4: Twitter. That's big. Twitter. Yeah. That, I'm just a reporter trying to do a job. You're just a
1: reporter. You and Shinpei and your team doing great stuff as always. Lots of data in your column here. So again, check it out on bloomberg.com uh, and on the Bloomberg terminal and on Twitter apparently. And on Twitter.
4: <laughs>
1: Want to switch to crypto? Taxes. You have to pay taxes, apparently, Matt, on your crypto gains. Tom Wheelwright, founder of WealthAbility, joins us here. Tom, give us your overview. What do you you tell your clients about crypto and and the tax uh, implications of crypto and all things crypto?
5: Thanks, Matt. Well, what you have to realize is that every time you use crypto, you've sold it. And it's treated as a taxable transaction. So you have to keep track, not just when you actually sell it, let's say, you're you know selling some bitcoin it went up and so you're selling some but you're actually using it when you use it you also have to pay tax on that and losses are capital losses so they're limited gains are capital gains and so if you hold it for more than a year you actually get a tax benefit
2: wait uh capital losses are limited <laughs> correct they're to, limited to what? What?
5: they can only offset capital gains
2: ah oh. That is such a huge bummer. Um, I'm sure that no one's keeping track of Bitcoin they're using when they buy something. Um, In fact, this whole area is so new. Do you get a lot of people coming to you saying, like, I just need, uh, you know, crypto tax rules 101? Because how, how would you have any idea what kind of tax burden a, a coin or, a, or an NFT is going ge- to generate for you? Well, yeah, totally. Because, you know, if you,
5: <laughs> if you spend money, you don't typically think, oh, I've got a tax taxable transaction there. I have to track when I spend money. You don't think that. But with crypto, you do. It's like it's like if you actually um, uh, use the stock. Let's say you use some of your Apple stock to buy something. It would be the same thing. Uh, that's the way the IRS treats it. So, hmm tracking it is the, actually the number one issue right now is how do you track all of your crypto transactions
1: I'm just guessing the IRS has no idea what to do with crypto are they tracking this stuff closely do they know
5: what they're doing no i don't think so i actually don't think anybody really knows what they're doing from a tax standpoint
2: that's <laughs> <laughs> never stopped the IRS <laughs> yep
5: it, that, that's the point it's never stopped the IRS what however in the the infrastructure bill last year, they they are going to require uh, crypto exchanges to track it. So at least the crypto exchanges will have to track it. This is kind of like back in the early um, 90s. um, I recall when people were day trading and they had to track every single day trade, but now the brokers do it, right? That's what's going on in crypto. All
1: right, Tom. Thanks very much. (laughs) Really appreciate it. Tax Day wasn't Confusing enough. Now we've got crypto. You have to, you know, track the taxable uh, transactions that you have with crypto. Tom Wheelwright, he's a founder of WealthAbility, giving us some thoughts here on crypto. And I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think I've ever claimed anything on my tax returns for crypto at this point. And I, you know what? I don't plan on doing it ever. Um, How about that? You're gonna have to, dude. <laughs> really?
2: Yeah. I mean, at some point, it's gonna become. Um, just like any other asset. Or you're going to have to have regulators declare it like a currency. Ah. Wad of cash in my pocket. I'm showing Matt. That's how we roll here.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.
1: I'm right, Matt. Back in the summer of 1990, before my between my first and second year of business school, at Duke did an internship at Merrill Lynch Investment Bank. My key transaction. Merrill. My key transaction from that summer was a. million, I think that was amount. Liquid yield option note, a lion for Kerr-McGee, the energy company down in Texas. Uh, Wow. Yep. I can't believe
2: that you have trouble understanding crypto when you're dealing with such incredibly complex (laughs) transactions. I have no idea what you just said.
1: Yep, it was cool. uh, Discounted uh, note for uh, Kerr-McGee. That was pretty cool. Uh, I can't remember the banker who I pitched it with. But anyway, that was good stuff. Anyway, they reported some numbers today. Uh, Shanali Bassing joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Shanali how did uh, my friends at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, do? Uh,
6: it's pretty fascinating. You would not have expected this to be a quarter where anything hit a record. But advisory fees for the first quarter hit a record. Equity trading hit a record. And part of that was because you have buy-side clients of the likes of hedge funds and other clients, big investors, still taking on financing in order to engage with these markets. Uh, More derivatives trading, and so really robust trading desks there in the face of expected high declines. Talk to me
1: about compensation. That's (laughs) my favorite topic when we talk about these investment banks. What are the the big banks saying now? Because they're paying their junior bankers a lot more. I assume that means they're paying their senior bankers more. How big of an issue is this for the margins?
6: Yeah, uh, it depends on who you are. For Bank of America in particular, remember their headcount has declined steadily over the last couple okay. of quarters. So, you know, you can raise prices for some bankers, but you can also not have as many of them. Bank of America is keeping control of costs. And remember, it's not just the bankers, it's the investment in technology. This quarter, Bank of America generated more than half, 53% of its total sales through digital means. Really? Yes, fascinating. And so you are seeing, they have hundreds of patents out for more, you know, advanced technology. And you do see them really keeping control over their costs at a time where they're willing to invest to gain more share in a tough market.
2: So we've this is the last of the major Wall Street banks to report, right? If you step back and look at them, can you say something universal about um, the banks this season?
6: I go back to what Jamie Dimon and his executive said a couple of days ago, which is that the probability of a recession went from being low to less low. So you have all <laughs> these banks that are you know, not answering questions necessarily on what the probability of a recession is, but the fact that it may happen, and this is what their businesses could look like in that scenario. Interestingly, in the event of an interest rate rise that's more severe than initially expected, Bank of America says that rates would have to rise a lot more in order to impact the way that people are borrowing, because right now consumers are still pretty healthy, at least how they look at it.
1: Yeah, when I I think about Bank of America, Uh, I think about Wells Fargo. I think about, you know, real lending to real businesses on Main Street, whether that's Main Street, small town USA, Main Street, big city USA, but really lending to fund growth. What are they saying about loan demand? I
6: mean, do you want a mortgage at 5%? (laughs) That's still not a bad
1: mortgage. I mean, historically, I mean, it's not 3% that. Matt, the you know, the mortgage arbitrageur got just a couple months I ago. I spend
6: but. my Easter Sunday talking about mortgages somehow. <laughs> but we are, yes, I mean, listen, it does have an impact here on residential home loan originations. Yeah. And you see it a, a lot of the major banks. But the thing is credit card spend and credit card borrowing is still pretty high. So there is still borrowing. It's just not everywhere necessarily.
2: So in terms of... Uh, assumptions right um do we have to assume that the fed isn't going to drive us into a recession and i mean because that will change loan demand right
6: the assumption is that you can't look out past three months i see (laughs) the (laughs) assumption is the next three months Things could be okay, but after that, things are very cloudy, and and it's really anyone's guess where things go. Remember, Bank of America had sold off pretty heavily this year, about 14% or so, so they are rising today, but it seems like these banks are trading within a range here with not too much upside until some of those clouds leave the horizon.
1: When I think about the retail side of the business, just I always read stories about Bank A poaching brokers from Bank B. Is that still a thing?
6: Oh, yeah. People love the wealth business. And if you look yep. at, the, at the the price-to-book ratios, that means a place that they are trading at, it's really J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley trading more richly than anybody else, which shows you there's a premium on wealth here. Yep.
1: Good stuff. Uh, good stuff. Uh, Wall Street, I mean, some good numbers, I think, coming out of this first quarter. Maybe the expectations were a little bit low, but we got through most of the big financials. Uh, Shanali keeping us in the loop, as she always does. Shanali Bassick, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News.